It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. That crazy starts with an earthquake, birds, snakes, and aeroplanes. Many fruits are not afraid. I have a machine, listen to yourself, the world with its own needs. Let me bring your own head, beat it up, and I've seen that no sheets. The ladder puts the platter with the fear fight down. I fire in a fire, the fire, the southern gangs, the government for hiring the combat site. But you wasn't coming in a hurry, the security beat it down your neck. Welcome to the Doom and Bloom Hour with medical preparedness experts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. Your source for information on how to succeed if everything else fails. And now, your hosts, Dr. Bones and Nurse Amy. This is the hour of doom and bloom. That's right. And squeaky those... chairs. <laughs> squeaky chair. Sorry, folks. <laughs> That's right. Well, those dulcet tones are from the lovely nurse Amy. She's making an appearance on our humble podcast, uh, taking some time out from. I feel like I'm a hostage, though. You got me trapped in here with these chairs. <laughs> I know. Usually, I'm there in my little cubby hole there. Where we just move things around. I was wor- shaking it up. I was working, and he said, "Come do the podcast," and I was like. But I'm working. Well, you're packing kits and yeah. putting masks in boxes and <laughs> all sorts of stuff for all great folk that uh, that need them. And we hope you guys are all healthy out there. And, and safe. And safe. That's right. That's right. And with that, friends and neighbors, welcome to Doom and Bloom Survival Medicine Hour podcast, a cautious cove of convergence in a COVID world. <laughs> COVID world. That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Joe Alton, MD, that old Dr. Bones, founder of Survival Top 50's Reader's Choice website, doomandbloom.net, your choice for both medical education and an entire line of medical kits and supplies on the interweb. And if you have been on the moon for the last 10 years, you may not know Nurse Amy. Tell us who <laughs> you are. Amy Alton. I'm an advanced registered nurse practitioner. And your partner in... Crime. No, not crime. It's the opposite of crime. In helping others. That's right. In altruism. <laughs> there you go. Hey, you're going to hear things on this show that are outside the conventional medical wisdom. Be forewarned. But we would like to keep our active medical licenses. So listen to this. All information and opinions voiced on the Survival Medicine Podcast are for entertainment purposes only. And do not represent medical advice. For anything other than post-apocalyptic settings, we strongly urge our audience to seek modern and standard medical care whenever and wherever it is available. That's right. In other words, don't listen to a thing we say. Just some old guy ranting on his rocking chair, drooling on his shoes. (laughs) But you can't listen to her, though. She's so awesome that kittens and puppies... Watch videos of her oh, on yeah, YouTube. Right. That's right. Yes, no, they do. I watch videos That's how of awesome kittens you are. and puppies for stress relief. <laughs> and um, babies. Babies with puppies. Oh, boy. There isn't anything cuter. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I wish we could stay on the cute subject, but we're going to stay on the COVID subject today. Ugh. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to steamroll populations in all sorts of places throughout the world, driving a, a huge 
effort to find a treatment or cure or vaccine, anything that will help with the disease. And the drug that's most recently approved by the FDA for emergency use is Gilead Scientist Sciences. You know, I don't know if it's Gilead or Gilead. Have you heard mm. Gilead? I don't know. I've heard it actually said both ways. Okay. Well, we'll call it uh, whatever. Gilead. Okay, we'll call it Gilead. But wait a second. I don't know if there's an extra I there. Not mm. an extra I. Gilead or Gilead? Let's go with Gilead. Okay, you got it. So anyhow, <laughs> they have an antiviral drug called remdesivir, and that is the latest one to actually have been approved by the FDA for emergency use. What is remdesivir? Why is it considered to have potential against the SARS-CoV-2 virus? Wait, before you go there, why don't you just discuss for just a second what emergency use actually means? Ah, okay. Well, basically... Because I don't think a lot of people understand. They hear that. They say, oh, FDA approved, and then their brains kind of shut off. Say, oh, well, it must be approved, but there's a special approval. That's right. Indeed, there are a lot of drugs that are used for off-label purposes mm -hmm. right. and uh, i remember uh, as a young obstetrician we used a asthma drug that was called ritadrine and ritadrine had the unusual property of stopping contractions in women that were in premature labor right and so we used that for a reason other than what it was originally used completely for. different that's right chloroquine and that family of drugs, it's, a, it's meant for malaria, to treat malaria, but indeed it has been used, and the FDA gave an emergency use authorization for it to be used in the case of COVID-19 cases. It, they later amended that to say, in the hospital. So they have to be used, it has to be used in the hospital. So, but let's talk about remdesivir today. What's remdesivir? That is an experimental drug in the family known as nucleoside or nucleotide analogs. A nucleoside is a compound found in DNA and RNA. A virus, by the way, has either DNA or RNA in almost all cases, but not both like humans do. An analog is anything that seemed to be comparable to another thing. So therefore, a nucleoside analog resembles naturally occurring compounds that are found in viral and human for that reason, for that uh, matter, genetic material. Remdesivir is comparable in structure to genetic building blocks, but that's not the reason that nucleoside analogs are so effective in dealing with some medical issues. It doesn't focus so much on the similarities as the differences, slight though they may, though they may be, between the drug and natural nucleosides. If an organism like a virus incorporates a nucleoside analog drug into its genetic material rather than the real thing, even those small changes in the structure of these building blocks prevents the mechanism of viral replication from happening. Now, that's what seems to be the case with remdesivir and COVID-19. It works by blocking the coronavirus's genetic copier, an enzyme known as RNA polymerase. This enzyme is required for SARS-CoV-2 to replicate its RNA genetic material and multiply. It works when the enzyme that replicates the genetic material for a new generation of virus accidentally grabs the analog drug rather than the natural molecule and incorporates it into the growing RNA strand. If it does this, it derails the viral train and it blocks the RNA from completing the process of making new viruses while at the same time not harming normal cells. And that means no newborn viruses looking for more host cells to invade. Remdesivir was originally developed at Gilead Sciences to search for inhibitors of hepatitis C, another RNA virus. 
Now, Gilead ultimately chose a different drug for hepatitis, but decided to test the remdesivir against other viruses. And remdesivir, they were hoping to have some effect against Ebola, but it really exhibited questionable medicinal benefit against that disease. It did turn out to have some success, though, against coronaviruses like Middle East Respiratory Syndrome and others. So, hmm, <laughs> one coronavirus that it may have an effect with, and so therefore could have an effect against COVID-19. Now, according to the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, patients who received remdesivir had a faster recovery time compared to those who received the placebo. That's 11 days compared with 15 days. Now, four days left, less in the hospital, you may not think it's a big deal, but it is a big deal when you think of saving bed and ventilator space, personal protection gear, and most importantly, human suffering. Absolutely. I mean, if you're laying in bed sick, even if you're not on the respirator, you just want to get out of there. Yeah, that's right. Get Four me days, out big of this yeah. hospital. I want to be home with my family. I mean, you also think about people who are sick with this thinking, well, if I get more of this viral load, I might get even sicker. So you really want to get out of the hospital ASAP. That's absolutely right. Now, remdesivir also, by the way, had a survival benefit. There was a death rate of about 8% if you took remdesivir, but 11.6% if you just took a placebo. Now, these results are preliminary, but there are all sorts of clinical trials that are underway throughout the world. Uh, infectious disease expert Dr. Anthony Fauci says that the antiviral drug remdesivir, this is a quote, is the first step in what we project will be better and better drugs coming along. But he also warned that this is not the answer, not the total answer. Now, that's more than he was willing to say about the chloroquines, like hydroxyquinolone. Uh, they are much less expensive, and they've been tested, obviously, for, for many years. decades. Right. Uh, and they were used uh, in COVID-19 in conjunction with zinc and the antibiotic azithromycin. Now, that drug was described as having only anecdotal evidence. Now, anecdotal evidence is just by personal observation and opinion. At, with regards to its effectiveness. I just want to say one thing about this. It worries me that they, quote, had used it as emergency use, mm -hmm. but I don't see anywhere where they were telling doctors or health facilities to utilize it with zinc. And as far as the knowledge that you and I have garnered from this medication, from that, quote, anecdotal information that was out there, is that it works with zinc. Right. And if you give it by itself, it's not really doing anything. So if the emergency authorized use did not involve a combination with zinc and maybe just with azithromycin, which is not zinc, it's just an antibiotic for a secondary bacterial infection. Uh -huh. So if you're not giving it in combination with the zinc, then the zinc isn't able to get into cells and help stop the virus because the hydroquinolone itself does not stop the virus. Right, it's it's like a potentiates the zinc effect. It's like a trucker bringing the zinc into the bad guy's cave. You know, <laughs> we got to get the zinc in there so it can be effective. Right, that is just the trucker. The zinc is what's actually the soldiers. So I'm not sure if they did or didn't use zinc. It didn't say under the treatment. It, they had dosages, but in no place did I say, did I read, and combined with X milligrams of zinc, X number of times of days, it yes. just never said that. You're right. And I'm so glad I think you a mentioned- A lot of doctors or I'm sorry, in healthcare facilities 
not understanding the mode of hydroquinolone just didn't use zinc. They're like, oh, that's a vitamin or a mineral or, you know, we don't need that. We only need the stuff that the pharmacies are providing us. Now, there was a risk of heart complications in people who took chloroquine or hydroxyquinolone, mm-hmm. but, but those were at higher doses. The actual test dose that they were using was higher than what they used for malaria. So it's hard to say. I think it still may help some patients. It has an emergency it- FDA use authorization for compassionate use. Absolutely. And again, if perhaps it would have been utilized the way at least the doctor in New York City said he was using it, which was with zinc on a daily basis, maybe they would have had much better results. But if you don't know to use zinc because it's not in the emergency authorization list of protocol, they're not going to do it. They're not going to go to GNC or or Mr. Vitamin store down the street and go buy something for a hospital and then give it to the patients. Right. They're just not going to do that. So they would have had to put that in the protocol, and I don't see it. So I'm wondering if it's just not effective because they weren't using it right. That's that, a possibility. That's a problem. I mean, there are studies that show that it has an effect, studies that show it doesn't have an effect. And guess what? That's the same thing with remdesivir. It works in some studies. Uh, with help uh, sick COVID-19 patients, including the big study that I just mentioned. The other studies report doesn't seem to show a significant effect. And all of that means that remdesivir or even chloroquine has, may have, both of these may have potential to be helpful in severe cases of COVID-19, but probably not by themselves. A combination of drug uh, therapy will probably end up as the most effective therapy, two or three drugs probably, like they give you if you develop tuberculosis. Right, if, right. Studies don't seem to show much difference with regards to five days of the intravenous remdesivir treatments compared to 10-day treatments. Now, this is good news because it may mean that all you need is five days on the drug. That essentially doubles what's a very limited global supply of this stuff, not to mention cutting the probably considerable cost in half. Well, it's also interesting that I don't think a lot of people have heard that this is an IV medicine. You keep hearing about, you know, the company is donating a million doses and we're making more doses, but I don't think a lot of people are discussing the fact that this is a liquid and this has to go through an IV. Right. They're not going to give you a prescription for it and have you do it at home. Right. This isn't something you're going to buy it instead of Mr. Health Store at Mr. Pharmacy Stores or Mrs. Pharmacy Stores, I should say. Right. And that's why the authorization by the FDA only allows it to be given to patients if they're severely ill with low oxygen saturation levels and requiring maybe ventilator support. Mm -hmm. Now, Gilead says it's got to coordinate the donation of remdesivir to hospitals and cities that are most heavily impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic. So these are going to be facilities with intensive care units that the government believes most in need. Well, you know, I was going to say something about that. Also, is... (laughs) Who's this company to decide where they're distributing this free stuff to? Well, they're doing it with the federal guidance. I hope the guidance is coming from a neutral source and not, you know, hey, I've got a buddy over in this city and he said he needs it. And we had lunch together and played golf. So I'm going to send him a bunch of the free doses. I hope this is distributed where it's needed most. Well, I'm pretty sure that that is something that the government's going to make sure. But I'll bet that if somebody's buddy has a bad case of it, that the case of it's going to make its way to uh, uh, northern Alaska. Nothing we can do about (laughs) it. 
If, right where they have what, like two cases? Right, exactly. <laughs> so to sum up, Remdesivir. Thank goodness, thank goodness yes, they yeah. don't have many. I'm, that's right. I'm happy about that. That's right. So Remdesivir, not a miracle drug, better than a placebo. For Remdesivir to be used more widely, it's going to have to meet the more rigorous standards that are required for permanent FDA approval. Right. Scientific studies, right. Proof of, of effectiveness. Not too many side effects. <laughs> and stuff like that. Right. Yes. Now, I want to talk a little bit about vitamin D, the sunshine vitamin. vitamin yes, yes. This is so interesting. That's right. The university that studied this, Northwestern University, is actually where um, our oldest daughter, uh-huh. or actually my, yes. my oldest daughter, <laughs> you have a slightly older daughter by one year, but uh, she went to her master's degree for. That's right. So Northwestern go University. Northwestern University. Uh-huh. There you go. Well, vitamin D, that's made in the body. You actually make it yourself, which is pretty cool. Uh, the sun's ultraviolet rays, the UVB rays, UVB rays, not UVC, yes, which UVB. is used for disinfection of some masks and stuff that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. But UVB rays hitting the skin actually makes vitamin D. It's very important for a lot of bodily functions, including the absorption of calcium uh, for bones, a nerve conduction, and immune function as well. I want to talk about that last part. It's becoming clear that the worst COVID-19 patients seem to have more likelihood of being deficient in vitamin D than other people. Which is an epidemic. That's right. We've been told for years, stay out of the sun, use sunscreen, wear a hat, wear a long sleeve. We have all kinds of clothing lines that have SPF built into them, 50 so a lot of people aren't getting the amount of sun maybe we're, that they need to get. Exactly. Especially the safe, at, the safe at home areas. And we're just coming out of winter also. Right. So it was sort of a double whammy. It was like, okay, winter, and then now we're telling people to stay in their houses. A lot of people are just going to become, if they weren't before, deficient in vitamin D, which makes this all worse. There you go. And it is a major public health problem worldwide, by the way. And, and by the way, in all age groups, but especially in old folks that are 70 or more. I mean, vitamin D status deteriorates with age naturally, but also due to most people, as they get older, decreasing their sun exposure. Right. Uh, it's particularly low in the institutionalized population in nursing homes. Obviously, because they don't get out how much. how often are they getting out? Exactly. Maybe. I mean, if they're mobile. That's the thing. If they're not mobile, they're not getting out at all. That's right. 75% of them are thought to be severely vitamin D deficient. I absolutely believe that. Uh, the... T- study that was done recently was in the southern europe they compared southern european countries uh with other countries they found that they had lower levels of vitamin d the areas that were having the most deaths italy and spain right. and the funny thing is that they call it sunny spain or sunny italy mm-hmm. but people that are in those areas well they deliberately decrease their exposure i don't blame them i prefer the shade to the hot sun any day but it's funny because the northern part of Europe, their mean levels of vitamin D are better as a result of a routine consumption of fish oil, or cod liver oil specifically, and vitamin D supplements, as well as fortification through milk and milk products. Uh, now, regarding the protective role of vitamin D against infection with COVID-19, mm-hmm. with the SARS-CoV-2 virus, let's start by looking at the effect on other respiratory infections. Now, there was a review on various studies that was published in the journal of aging clinical 
and experimental research. Mm -hmm. And it concluded that vitamin D supplementation was safe and protective against acute respiratory tract infections. They reported that people who were severely vitamin deficient experienced the most benefits if they have a respiratory infection. It may not prevent the respiratory infection, but the recovery was easier and faster and the uh, syndrome was not as bad. Great. So at Northwestern University, the study that you're talking about Mm -hmm. found uh, a significant relationship between vitamin D levels and the number of COVID cases and the mortality rate from COVID-19. The researchers noted that the patients from Countries with high COVID-19 mortality rates, they had lower levels of vitamin D compared to patients in countries that were not as severely affected. They stopped short of recommending vitamin D supplements, however. They were saying that while it's important for people to know that vitamin D deficiency might play a role in mortality, we don't need to push vitamin D on everyone. That's according to the lead researcher. He said that this needs further study. And I see these disclaimers on all sorts of various studies that so often, by the way, that I think the researcher's favorite plant is the hedge because <laughs> it's a cla- these are classic cases of hedging your bets. Right. You know, you don't want to say... We think, but yeah. we're not going to say for sure. That's right. And, and by the way, don't go out and do what we think might help you because, and I read one of these things, they're afraid that everyone's going to start hoarding vitamin D. Well, folks, if you're listening, I don't want you to go out and buy 5,000 doses because that's going to take you a long time to to take and maybe you won't even be alive after 5,000 <laughs> 5,000 doses depending on how old you are but you might want to just buy a couple of bottles get you know two or three months for the family and have everybody take a safe recommended amount of vitamin d not 4,000 times what you need we don't need to go overboard here but take something, especially if you guys are hanging out inside most of the day, like we all are for the most part. Now, even though the people that are over age 70 seem to be particularly vitamin D deficient, mm-hmm. there are differences in death rates that were evaluated by the study. And they mm-hmm. found that across all the age groups that the death rate was higher in people that were severely vitamin D deficient. So if you were 40 years old and vitamin D deficient, you will die more often from COVID-19 than those that have plenty of the sunshine vitamin. Wow. So how does vitamin D do it? It appears that, in other words, how does it prevent you from having a severe case of COVID-19? It appears that the level of vitamin D in the patient, if it's low, increases their chances of developing something called cytokine storm. That's a hyper-inflammatory condition that's caused by an immune system gone haywire. Mm-hmm. A cytokine storm seems to, seems to be mm-hmm. responsible for the deterioration of a lot of COVID-19 cases into what we call acute respiratory distress syndrome, and that's what usually kills them. Now, for all we know at present, we can say that cytokine, cytokine storm can severely damage lungs and lead to this acute respiratory distress syndrome, also known as ARDS, A-R-D-S. The majority of COVID-19 patients die from this rather than just the effect of the virus itself. They die from the overreaction of their own immune system. It's not the destruction of the lungs by the virus itself. It's complications from a misdirected fire, friendly fire, if you may say, from the immune system. 
Now, this is exactly where the researchers believe vitamin D plays a major role. Not only does vitamin D enhance the immune system, but it also prevents the immune system from becoming dangerously overactive. That's an action called immunomodulation. Right. And that means that having healthy levels of vitamin D could prevent patients against severe complications from COVID-19. Now, the recent studies analysis shows that vitamin D supplementation might cut the actual mortality in half. Now, it might, won't prevent, I want to say this again, it's not going to prevent a person from getting COVID-19, but it may reduce complications and prevent death in the people who are affected. Although we can't say that for sure. Because right. if you've got a healthy immune system... We don't know how many COVID viral particles you can be exposed to before it overwhelms your system. Sure, because might, that's individual for each person. That's true. It might and they make don't, it. They don't even know an average. Right. It might make it necessary for you to have more, more of an exposure right. to actually get the disease. That I guess that's possible. It is possible. If, if you've got a healthy immune system, good vitamin D, good vitamin C, you're at a good weight, you eat healthy. You know, all the things that we've talked about, you drink lots of water, you get some exercise, you know, you're, you're just in good condition. You don't even have to be young, but you're just in good condition for your age. Maybe it takes more of a viral load. So maybe it does help some people prevent the infection. I don't think we're ever going to know that answer because they're never going to take 100 people and put them in glass rooms and give them a certain amount of particle load and say, Okay, well, this is how much it took to make you sick. <laughs> right. They're just not going to do that because some of those people might die, and then that's not a good study outcome. Right. It's like, it's like testing Sorry, pregnant you're... ladies to see if certain drugs will make your babies be right. perform. Exactly. Right. Exactly. They're just never going to do that. So we're never going to know what a healthy immune system protects us against the amount, you know, increased levels of the viral load. We're just never going to know that answer. So all we can do is think, well, the healthier I am, maybe the more resistant I am to some of this there's, around me. There's certainly a lot of mysteries surrounding COVID-19. And one of them that might involve vitamin D is why children seem to be less likely to die. Now, I'm going to talk about the ones in New York in a second. But children... Oh, they're also in California, okay. too. They're, all right. they're now showing up there. Well, children in general have innate natural immunity, but they don't ne necessarily have a well-developed acquired immune system. Now, that's the immune system's second line of defense and more likely to overreact. And, and that's what the adults have that little kids don't have. The children primarily rely on their natural, their innate immune system, which may explain why their mortality rate is lower because they don't get into cytokine, cytokine storm mm -hmm. as much. However, having said that, a number of children are becoming very ill by developing, as you mentioned, a syndrome um, that could endanger their life as, as uh, a few kids have succumbed to that disease. The disease looks like something called Kawasaki's disease. Kawasaki's disease primarily affects children and causes inflammation in the walls of medium-sized arteries, skin, nose, mouth, throat, and also lymph nodes throughout the body. The inflammation tends to affect coronary arteries too, and so that can give, give little kids coronary artery disease, pretty terrible. A Kawasaki disease shows up as a high fever and sometimes skin that peels. And it can be pretty scary looking. The, the good news is that, is that it's usually treatable. And most people recover from Kawasaki's disease without long-term problems. But this mystery disease associated with COVID-19, they're calling that something different. They're calling it pediatric multisystem inflammatory syndrome. And that has been detected in something like 50 out of 60 kids that 
have had this and wound up in ICUs and a number of them have died. So while I, while I think that vitamin D supplementation is a good thing, I think people should probably not take excessive doses of vitamin D, which might come with negative side effects, right. such as a buildup of calcium in your blood, hypercalcemia, that can cause nausea and vomiting, weakness, frequent urination, and sometimes you can have bone pain and even kidney problems, such as the formation of calcium stones. It's really hard to say what dose is going to be most beneficial for COVID-19, but it's clear that vitamin D deficiency is harmful. So taking vitamin D might be another case to helping, another key at least, to helping protect elderly and minority populations, maybe kids uh, also. Uh, elderly and minority populations have more than a 50% vitamin deficiency rate, so something that we should probably consider. They should do some public mm -hmm. service announcements like these masks and hygiene and respiratory hygiene, cleaning surfaces, using hand sanitizer. They need to include some vitamin Maybe D. Maybe taking in there. vitamin D. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I, I. And again, not overdoses, <laughs> but you know, recommended for your age group. Well, consider this a public service announcement. There to that you effect. go. <laughs> Spread the word. Hey, you just got a blood test to see if you have COVID-19. and Don't most... trust it. <laughs> <laughs> Aha, I'm just about to say that. Many people don't get symptoms. It's possible you had it. You don't even know, or maybe you had some mild cough or GI complaints that went away after a week or two. That's something that we see in a lot of people. Num there are a number of tests that can give you information. There's a swab test, which Amy took. That tells you whether you have active COVID-19 at the moment. Yeah, you mean that thing they shoved up into my brain? Right, pretty right much. Nose? It take, took a few days to get back, and it's usually... But he didn't do it right. He was poking me inside and not really swabbing around so much. He was more interested in sticking it in with a poking mechanism rather than swabbing the inside of that whole area up no. inside my nose. Well, that's he should have gone in circles rather than poking. I don't understand it, but I'm not going to tell him to do his job when he's got a, a Q-tip shoved 12 inches up my nose, which is what it felt like. And your eyes are watering. <laughs> Sounds terrible. I'm so sorry you went through that. Yeah. Well, that may be able to tell you, you. whether you have COVID-19 at the moment, but they're also testing you for antibodies against the disease too. There's a blood test. Antibodies are produced by your immune system after exposure to an antigen. An antigen is a toxin or some other foreign substance which in induces an immune response in the body like the SARS-CoV-2 virus does. Now, people might be on the fence hoping that their test comes out negative, their antibody tests, but others might want it to show antibodies because they think about that when you had chicken pox or the chicken pox vaccine, you developed antibodies and meant you were unlikely to get the illness again the rest of your life. You certainly weren't contagious to other people. Uh, antibodies are good and, and Indeed, a decent immune system will produce plenty of them. With chicken pox antibodies, you can go about your business without worrying about getting sick. You can go back to what's close to normal life. But testing positive for antibodies to COVID-19 doesn't mean the same thing as having antibodies against chicken pox. There are dozens of different tests that are being used or developed in the United States right now. Few are highly accurate, which is sad. They, they often say you're clear, but they could be wrong. You actually could be sick. Uh, a couple days ago, I heard uh, the FDA had started testing last week. I think only a couple of them. I heard one, but maybe there's a couple now that have actually just been approved. So they're having to go through FDA testing now and uh, submit how they came up with it and how it's working. Right. Because there are so many out there on the market, 
And you could be told you don't have antibodies and you do, or you could be told you do have antibodies and you don't. This misinformation is not helpful for any of us. Right. Bottom line is that few of these tests are highly accurate. Uh, the Not yet. Cleveland Clinic found that 15% of tests were incorrect, saying you were healthy when you actually weren't. I know I had COVID. Well, there you go. I and know your, I did. your test came out negative. Yes. In other countries, even worse. In China, the false negatives were nearly 40%. Nor are antibody tests similar to the antigen tests that you had done that were just approved from emergency use uh, by the U.S. and uh, FDA uh, last week. That diagnostic test is going to be even more likely to miss a case of COVID-19. So there are lots of problems. The other problem is that even if it's accurate, it can only tell you if you're negative at the moment. Right. Next day, you could get it on a trip to the grocery store. Right. Or you could have gotten it the day before and just don't have enough of the replication. That's right. I was about to say that the thing with antibodies is that it could take a while. Yes. It could take weeks to build up a level. Well, antibodies. Okay, so there's there's the active infection, which is the test I had right. done. And then there's the, the post-infection when your body actually got a hold of it and killed it and all the antibodies are around because they were the soldiers that killed that silly virus that was in your body. But they don't show up immediately. No, they, they don't. take a while, probably maybe to weeks, build to build up a level of them that's detectable by a blood test, at least the blood test we have now. <sighs> we don't know how long that time period is for SARS-CoV-2. Uh, the tests also need to be able to differentiate between past infections with SARS-CoV-2 and other known coronaviruses. I'm not talking similar, about right, I'm not talking ones. about SARS or MERS, the ones that can be deadlier than COVID-19. I'm talking about several others that are in the coronavirus family that cause about 15 to 25% of common colds. Right. Now to give you an idea, let's talk about vaccines and how they work. Vaccinations are supposed to give just enough of a live or dead virus to get the body to mount an immune response but not enough to make you sick from the illness. But everybody's different. Some people don't react to the vaccine at all, or their immune system is just not quick enough or adequate enough to produce antibodies. Health officials shoot for a 60 to 70% protection rate. Some years, this is as low as 19%. The thing with COVID-19 is that your body may produce very short-lived antibodies or a few antibodies at all. Right. Wait, this is really, really important for you to emphasize just because we've had cases, just because you got sick and you got better does not mean for the rest of your life you will never get this again. We don't know. Right. It's looking like some of the evidence that is coming out is that we won't be immune forever. But we don't know how long we will be immune. Two weeks, two months, two years, 20 years. For the rest of our lives, we don't know this yet. And these antibody tests are going to be very, very important for us to continue to test people who have been known to have this to see when they go away. Is it still there five years from now? That's great. And the person hasn't gotten sick again. So what's the level of antibodies that we need in our body to keep us from getting sick? And how long are they going to stay around? Absolutely are they going right. to leave? Well, That's the, the fearful thing. The World Health Organization believes that there's no evidence that people who have recovered from COVID-19 and have antibodies are necessarily protected from a second infection. We've, that is I've mentioned scary. that before. And so now, if that's true, then that means we will not have herd immunity. 
If people who have gotten sick before can get sick again, just like someone who's never had it, then we don't have herd immunity. That's exactly right. We'll never have herd immunity without vaccines. Now, it's possible that the immunity is occurring not on a blood level, the antibodies in the blood, but by T-cells that cause something called cellular immunity. If, if the antibodies don't catch the uh, cells or don't catch the virus in the blood, mm-hmm. the virus can get into cells. But you do have T-cells, which do give you cellular immunity and actually can destroy cells that are infected mm-hmm. with a virus. And so along with antibodies, the combined adaptive response of blood immunity and cellular immunity might clear the virus from the body if the response is strong enough, it right. might prevent progression to severe illness or reinfection by the same virus. But consider this, even if we're lucky enough to have that happen, we don't know how long that immunity will last. That is just the unknown. So you, you don't have, no matter what, any kind of immunity passport that allows you to be able to certify that you are free of some kind of illness. And as a result, it's interesting to know, think what would happen when the world tries to open up and countries start opening up to other countries in terms of air travel and things like that. Whoa. So anyhow, that is all the time we have for this week. We thank you for listening to the Survival Medicine Podcast with Joe Alton, that old codger, and the queen, <laughs> Nurse Amy. Maybe we'll have some happier news next time. Next time. But this is education, folks. That's right. See you next week. Bye-bye.
Hi, I'm Joe Alden, MD of www.doomandbloom.net, where you'll find over 600 posts, videos, and podcasts on medical preparedness. Along with my wife, nurse practitioner Amy Alden, we're the authors of the Amazon bestseller, The Survival Medicine Handbook, with over 200 five-star reviews. A disaster can strike at any time, and the ambulance may not always be heading in your direction. We've got an entire line of medical kits, supplies, and educational resources that can help you deal with injuries and illness in everything from a wilderness hike to the aftermath of a major disaster. Check them out at our shop at store.doomandbloom.net. In a disaster, you'll be glad you didn't.